we head to Ottawa for a connection with our first guest. Don Drummond joins us from Ottawa. Mr. Drummond is a well-known economist, uh, formerly with the Toronto Dominion Bank and the Canadian Department of Finance. Currently, he is at Queen's University as the Stouffer Dunning Fellow in Global Public Policy, and he's also a professor of the in the School of Policy at uh, Queen's University in Kingston, and the author of a recent piece, co-author of a recent piece entitled Enabling Better Aging, The Four Things Seniors Need and the Four Things That Need to Change. Don Drummond, good morning and welcome to the program, sir. No, thank you very much. So I will note uh, not much sympathy for your listeners of Vancouver at five at uh, five degrees. We're we're minus twenty here in Ottawa right at the moment. Yeah, Eastern Canada in the just in the grip of a nasty, nasty winter storm. Uh, it's all yours, Don. You're welcome to it. <laughs> it's, it's sunny. That's the bright side. Well, there you go. Uh, interesting piece you wrote in the Conversation dot com about seniors. Uh, you, the the opening sentence: Canada's population is rapidly aging, but is it aging well? And uh, to place this question in the context of the midst of a pandemic is well pretty gutsy uh, on your part don but it sets the article up really well are canadian citizens or senior citizens aging well from where you sit well well no and it's an intriguing aspect of public policy has been my field for the last 40 years mm-hmm. and this is the slowest moving most predictable phenomenon you could possibly imagine where so many of us, and I'm a prime example of it, the product of the baby boom generation, and guess what? We're all kind of hitting 65 at the same time, and mm-hmm. we're all going to hit 75 at the same time, and we're all going to hit 85, and we've known this since right after the Second World War, and yet almost nothing's changed about it, and we've created this pretty much a binary system for people who aging that you live in your home until you have some challenge in living your home. And then you literally get warehoused in a long-term care facility. And we've always known, but the the pandemic most tragically brought to everybody's attention, they're dangerous places. Sure. Not all of them, but many of them are. And so we really need to look at the whole model such as it is. Um, we have almost no effort anywhere in Canada to accommodate people living independently longer, either in their home or in community living arrangements. Uh, one of the reasons I think we don't have that is because the Americans don't do this. And we kind of narrowly just compare ourselves to the Americans all the time. But other countries, particularly in Europe, have all kinds of community arrangements. Uh, most of those countries actually spend more on home care than they do in long care. We spend $6 on long-term care for every dollar in home care. So we've always had the model wrong. Yeah. The pandemic has put the focus on it, but it's not. I think everybody's aware that the number of seniors is going to dramatically increase, but that doesn't particularly matter. Not too much happens in the first 10 years, 65 to 75, but. If we look at the the conditions under which people are now ending up long-term care, there'll be a need for double the number of beds by 2035, and nobody is preparing for that whatsoever. And maybe nobody should, but if they're not going to, we have to improve home care, but not much is happening on that either. Well, exactly. We have this this paradox that... We know what's happening. We know what's going to happen, but almost nothing is being done about it. Well, it's true. And and, and back to your very first point about, and I'm a boomer as well, so uh, we're uh, very much in in the same uh, section uh, of the seating arrangement for this particular movie, Don. Uh, And uh, just the percentage of seniors that are part of the Canadian population. We've been analyzing this, and we know, and again, I'm referring to the article you've written recently, uh, about 60 
60 years ago, they were about 7% of the population. Now they're 17% of the population and will be almost 25% in 2041. So this is uh, not only a, a, a problem that won't go away, uh, as it's viewed by many, but it's it's uh, a situation that is only going to compound going forward and need more uh, more astute management. Well, I, it's almost a laughable matter uh, here in Ontario. A few years ago, the government put out with great uh, bells and whistles and balloons flying that they were going to build another 15,000 long-term care beds. And simultaneously, they closed the ward beds in the hospital. So that actually wiped out about 15,000 beds. So we're a net zero. <laughs> and they're right. kind of thinking, what don't you get here? <laughs> it's like, you haven't even got the right number of digits on the number, if that's going to be your approach. And, of course, one of the responses, and, and it's an appropriate response in the moment to the pandemic, is we're not going to get these four people to a room with a curtain separating them anymore. Sure. That's proven to be dangerous. So actually, we're going to lose more capacity. Yes. And we're just getting very slight capacity, but that's not even really the solution we should go for. We should be facilitating. You know, if you ask people what they want to do in the age, they always say they want to live independently. If they cannot live in their home, they want to stay within their community, some kind of community arrangement where you have concierge uh, medical services and social services, and we just don't do that in this country. Uh, but it's all, I find it so frustrating in so many aspects teaching public policy. There are good examples in the world where people do that, but we tend to find if they don't do it in the United States, then we don't really pay attention. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the, the the surveying that you've done, because you you've quite rightly point out that in the first 10 years of becoming a senior, 65 to 75, life's pretty good. It's when you get 75 plus that a lot of the medical and health complications tend to slow you down a little bit. But seniors of, of, of right across the spectrum will tell you, uh, and I'm, I'm looking for some background here, Don, uh, will tell you, I think that in, in great numbers, that they would very much prefer to live at home or in some kind of independent environment rather than being, to use your word, warehoused uh, uh, because there's no other, uh, no, no middle ground. It's either at home or in a, in a facility, either one or the other. Yeah, so here's a perfect example where we have a win-win condition. We know what people want. (laughs) Why won't we give people what they want? They Mm -hmm. want to live independently in their community, if not in their home. And, you know, I'm a bean counter. I worked for 23 years at Finance Canada. You do it in the budgets. I like to uh, be parsimonious on the expenditures. You can provide a pretty good slate of home care services for about $45 a day. It's around $145 a day minimum for long-term care, and it's about $1,000 a day for somebody to stay in a hospital. Don, just, so just by way the of... The cheapest way is actually the best way. The cheapest way is the way people want to do it. Why don't we do that? Yeah, well, let's talk about cost, because if it's if it's 45 45- Five bucks a day for a person to be kept uh, and cared for in their home. What does that work out to? And I'm just going back to the basic uh, amount of money that any Canadian might be receiving post 65, the CPP slash OAS, which nets out anywhere from 12 to say, let's round it up to say 1500 bucks a month. Does that senior's pension 
cover the daily cost of being looked after at, at a $45 a day rate? You're the well, math, you know, you're, you're the math really pro. It depends on your circumstances and where you are. Having a mother uh, age into a long-term care facility in British Columbia, I can tell you, you don't have it too bad there. Mm-hmm. Um, she got covered for quite a bit of it. That's not the case everywhere else. Anybody who has experienced that, and if you don't have that kind of network behind you, it's easily three to four thousand dollars a month. Yes, and I can tell you, Canadians, the baby boomer generation has not built up enough savings. They've not even really entered that into their equation. I mean, I, as you said, I used to work for the TD Bank, and we were always looking at the net savings people have when they're entering their senior years, and they don't have very much. But again, it's that the mindset. If we go back, as you said, to the 1950s and 60s, when many of us were born and when our so-called healthcare system was created, not very many people lived beyond retirement, beyond the 65 years. That's you true. You didn't look at a situation where you could be 10, 20, maybe even 30 years out of your income generating years and still living and hopefully living well, but not necessarily, but with a major expense. So we spend 1.3% of our gross domestic product on long-term care. And I figure when we make the improvements that will come out of these many reform commissions we've got from the pandemic, that will go up to about 2.2. That will just be a bit above the industrialized country. But then when we add in the doubling of the number of older seniors, will go to 4.2% of our GDP. So 1.3 to 4.2%. And the big, somebody's got to pay. <laughs> you know, I, and I find traveling these sort of circles is so fascinating because people say, well, the government should do it and the government should pay. And you have to remind people, there is no such thing as a government. <laughs> you are the government. We are the government. That's right. That's just all they do is take the money out of your pocket and distribute it to somebody else. It's still coming out of your pocket. Now, it makes a difference if all the cost was on monthly charges, then the seniors themselves and family and others associated with them would pay it all. If it was a general tax increase, then, of course, it would be spread across the population, including young people. Got to be a little bit careful like that. Like our generation's not being very kind to the ones coming on after, and we've handed them a mess on the environment. We We're certainly handing have. them a gigantic uh, public debt already. We're talking with Don Drummond, Mr. Drummond, noted Canadian economist, a longtime uh, servant of the Department of Finance, as well as chief economist at the TD Bank, uh, joining us specifically this morning relating to an article he's written, uh, co-written with a, a colleague at Queen's University, where he is an adjunct professor in the School of Policy Studies. The article is Enabling Better Aging, the four things seniors need and the four things that need to change. And Don, we identified pretty much the landscape around this uh, article in terms of the way uh, seniors have been funded. Uh, Seniors have been surveyed. We know that their preferences are wherever possible to remain at home. And if that isn't possible, at least in some kind of community environment, rather than being uh, shipped off to what used to be called the old folks home. They don't call them those anymore, but a lot of seniors still call them that and feel that way about them, don't they? They absolutely do. And so one of the thrusts has to be to 
create the conditions that allow people to stay out of those kind of homes. We'll probably inevitably need more, but let's let people live in the way they want to do. And that really cuts to the heart of our whole, what we call our healthcare system. If we go way, way, way back, and you're a baby boomer, so I'm allowed to do this, at least with you, hopefully some of your readers could come along the journey. If we go back to Tommy Douglas, we kind of forget he had two parts to his vision. One was the healthcare or health restoration, but the other part was health promotion. Yes. It was the system was supposed to be geared to creating healthy people. And obviously, if we're all healthy, we don't need as much health restoration. The second part kind of got forgotten. Maybe forgivably so because there weren't very many elderly people we didn't have a lot of chronic conditions back in those times but we've as the populations change and conditions have changed we've never adapted to that so the number two reasons why somebody at the moment in our mindset has to go to as you say the old folks home is dementia and frailty yes yeah and there's lots of cases where there's not much you can do about it, but there's lots of cases also where you can do something about it. One of the common denominators for both of those is the inactivity that we have created in our lives is causing these problems and exacerbating these problems. We can do something to keep people moving. An alarming decrease in physical activity of women, particularly, in the last couple of decades in that critical period, 45 to 65. That does not bode well for people who are getting a 75+. plus. Some are fairly straightforward. One of the leading factors you can influence dementia through is a dealing with hearing loss. When you're suffering hearing loss, it puts you into social exclusion, and that creates some of the conditions that exacerbates dementia. Mm-hmm. But we don't, nothing really in our whole system is designed to look at that. It's more you wait till something goes wrong, and then we're actually quite good at patching it up once you've gone wrong. But at that point, we've, we've waited too long. So it's a mindset. It's a system change. The whole way we budget, the whole way we pay physicians, typically fee-from-service, is designed in this health restoration rather than the health promotion. We've got to get to a situation where many more 75, 85-year-olds are in pretty good health and not accept that you have to suffer from frailty and dementia. Well, and I think the the problem, of course, is the limited amount of funds we have to spend on this particular priority, Don, because as you mentioned, it's quite a low number in terms of spending uh, uh, elsewhere. And until we we reprioritize that spending, we're stuck with basically the cost of keeping these people healthy, as in physically okay. And that seems to be adequate right now. And of course, you're pointing out, and in this pandemic, if anything has crystallized this reality, uh, the mental well-being of any person is as important as their physical well-being, and the two are are impossibly mixed. So if you're only focusing on physical well-being, clearly there are a lot of other needs that aren't being met. So to your point in your article, what seniors need to age well. You talk about appropriate housing and flexible health care, and that's the whole Tommy Douglas prevention as well as reaction. And then you talk about socialization, and that's something that uh, is encouraged in uh, seniors' residences, but especially during a time of pandemic, Don, it's pretty easy to park as well. Yeah, so, but but how do you get that without going to that end? I mean, I, I sort of look at the, you can think of it like a train going across the country. And we, we've got the two ends. The bookends are sort of covered. You can stay independently or home if you're in great physical, mental shape. Yep. Or if you're not, you go to long term. But what are some of the way stations? 
can you get an environment where you can actually have some independent living, but also have those social connections? And there are some. I mean, where Queen's University is located, there's a private facility. It's an apartment, private operation, but it has social and medical concierge services. Those are very common in Europe. Mm-hmm, uh, yes. In England, as example, they they have villages that have been purposely constructed to have a stratified age. They'll have lots of young people. Young people can get paid for doing these concierge sort of services. The older people get inspired by being with the younger people. They've thought about this. They've planned this out. Right. Uh, look in Denmark. Uh, Denmark always does the best on life satisfaction of seniors, and it's not a surprise. They have not built a long-term care bed since 1987. In fact, they passed a law to make it illegal to build any. Interesting. And they spend more on home care than they do on long-term care. So why have they thought this thing through and we haven't thought it through? But part of the problem is our traditional one. The federal government is now of late talking about it, but it's not their jurisdiction. It's kind of insulting, really, I think, in the fall update in early December. They've offered the provinces $1 billion for this year and next. And I'm thinking, do you not get that this problem is growing and growing? Like, yes, we have the heat of the moment, the sure. problem related to the pandemic. Yeah. But this is just going to get worse and worse as the number of not just seniors, but the relatively older seniors uh, explodes. So again, uh, the the remedy that, as you mentioned, Denmark and the UK, the Netherlands, also very much a part of these seniors' villages and seniors' communities. They have dementia villages in the Netherlands, for crying out loud, Don, that are, are ter- proving to be quite successful as well. So the point is, though, that it requires a different type of investment rather than just uh, uh, building warehouses, uh, which, of course, are necessary to a certain degree, no question. But even within that environment... Uh, it could be uh, it could be a much different place. Yeah, and and and, it, and it's but it's interesting in the government sense because probably the federal government is not the right one. They're mm-hmm. not the jurisdiction. They've not got the authority to do this, the expertise to do this. Maybe not even at the provincial level. Maybe increasingly at the community level. As I mentioned, those arrangements in Kingston, Ontario, are led by the community. Yeah, many of the arrangements in England and and the rest of Europe are led by the community level. We haven't had a history. I mean. We, we we used it wasn't very long ago. We always used to call the municipalities the junior level of government. It's pretty insulting to them, but that's where the majority of people live. That's where the majority of these needs are. But and we get into a whole other subject. Of course, we only give them a couple of tax tools. They get transfers from provincial and federal government, or they get property taxes. They don't typically have the means to do very much, and yet they're the, they're really where the action of today and the action tomorrow to be. The, they need to step forward, but they need support to do this. So. It requires a whole bunch of uh, takers and the whole medical profession to change the mindset. We're here to fix you once you've been broken to as opposed to let's make sure you stay in good shape for a longer period of time. How does this get sold to government? We're, we, we know that the Trudeau government is would really, really, really like to go and uh, earn that majority government. They think they're so darn close to having. They, they, they'd like to have an election sometime this year. They may not get to do it because the whole vaccine thing is really crossing up their, their grand plan. However, when it comes time to uh, vote next time around uh, and someone wants us to pay attention to seniors' needs, and they all will, certainly the pandemic has has informed every Canadian that this is a file that needs to be opened up and exposed to a lot of light and and, uh, and dialogue. So how do you sell this, to, uh, especially on the part of a federal government that is going to rely, for the most part, on young Canadian voters to give them the
the majority they so desperately seek. Well, the federal government have got themselves in a very dicey position on both home care and long-term care because they've got a tight lid on their major funding assistance to the provinces for health care, the so-called Canada Health Transfer. They've limited the growth and nominal size of the economy uh, with a floor of 3%. We know nominal GDP is actually for the first time in Canada has fallen in 2020. So yeah. the thing's hardly going to grow at all. So the federal share of health spending is going to continue to go down, and the provinces are rightly quite sore about that. They've offered for time-limited only money for home care. So that's fairly typical of the federal government. Get involved, get the provinces to gear up the programs, and then pull your money out of it and live it with, leave it with the provinces. And then what they're doing in long term is even worse. They've just offered money for two years. So it's, it came as no surprise to anybody that Quebec said, well, wait a minute. Uh, you're not going to come into our jurisdiction and give us money and insist on conditions because the federal government is saying the provinces have to show them the spending plans before they get long-term care. That's not the way the transfer is supposed to work, but other provinces are going to say that as well. Mm -hmm. So the federal government can play a role, but I think their role would be more if they could facilitate the creation of national standards, things like that. But I I think the lead is going to come more from the provincial and particularly from the municipal levels on Mm -hmm. this fund. But, you know, the bottom line is people are going to have to pay more, (laughs) whether they pay more through taxes or they pay more directly for the monthly charges for some kind of living arrangement. uh, That is to be determined, and there's interesting pros and cons of both sides of this, but uh, watch out if you think we're paying all uh, life is expensive uh, right now. Wait till uh, we get doubling of the number of 75-plus Canadians. Indeed. Uh, The article, friends, is available at theconversation.com. It's a a fast and very worthwhile read. Enabling Better Aging, the four things seniors need and the four things that need to change, co-authored by our guest, Don Drummond. Great to have you on the program this morning, Don. We've never met before, and it's uh, seriously overdue. So I appreciate you uh, having the opportunity to meet you and having this conversation and look forward to possibly a few more down the road. Given now, none of us can go anywhere at the moment. We won't meet him in person in a moment, but maybe someday. Indeed. Thanks, Don, very much. Okay. There's Don Drummond, adjunct professor in the School of Public Policy at Queen's University in Toronto. That's the current job. He ran the economics department of the TD Bank for 25 years. Zach Carter is on the line. Mr. Carter is a senior reporter with the Huffington Post based in New York City and author, also the author of a book called The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And Zach is here to tell us a little bit about his impression of what happened this week with the Redditors. Here's the, here's the piece that he wrote in the Huffington Post. The Redditors have revealed a myth about the stock market. The stock market cannot cure what ails you. Zach Carter, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you with us. What did you make of what the heck happened this week? Well, I first of all, I found it a bit of a strange relief that the biggest story of the week was about the stock market and not something much worse. We've yes. had some, some rough months lately. Um, I, you know, I think these uh, we're still finding out exactly what happened in this in this particular uh, incident, and I think the SEC and the Department of Justice in the United States will be looking into exactly what went on. And that will probably take a few months before we know the full story. But sure. the, the, the sort of part that's been revealed thus far is that a lot of day traders, you know, people trading relatively small amounts of money, um, have <laughs> found a way to completely wreck uh, a massive short position at a fairly large hedge fund called Melvin Capital. And uh, they, they did this by intentionally boosting the value of a few stocks, one of them a, 
a, a, a game, video game retailer that you see in shopping malls sure. called GameStop mm-hmm. for no particular reason. They appeared to have done it just for fun, um, and it worked. Uh, they, they ruined the, the short position of this, of this hedge fund, cost them billions of dollars. Uh, and I, they sent a lot of Wall Street comment, commentators kind of scrambling, saying, oh, this is, this is terrible. This is market manipulation. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see the, the details that they reveal. But I think ultimately the lesson for me here was that this is not that different from what the stock market is on a regular basis. That, that ultimately the stock market doesn't really have a, a, a critical social function or the critical social function that's often ascribed to have in economics textbooks. We really don't see a lot of investment happening through the stock market. And by investment, I mean actual expenditures on plant, equipment, research and development. Um, companies get their money in other ways, sure. through capital markets, uh, through bank loans or from the federal government. And... As a result, what happens on the, on the stock market is largely just this sort of speculative stuff. People placing bets for fun. So all of these, um, all of these young investors, and, and, and the consensus is, Zach, that they're young people, and they're not just in the United States. They're all over the world. A uh, uh, big write-up in some of the papers in the U.K. Uh, as a lot of young Brits got involved in all this. So you talked about doing it for fun uh, and, and for sport and for sticking it to the man and all of those young sort of rationale. for. Is there anything more malicious than that going on, do you suspect, underneath? I, honestly, I, I, I don't know enough. I, I think, uh, you know, that the aspect of the story that we've seen is that these, these kids on Reddit are having a pretty good time. And sure. you can see them talking about it. They're, they're, those messages are public. That information is readily available. Yeah. What we don't know is what other, um, what, what other parties were involved in, in, this, in this project. I mean, there were... Um, there was enough money changing hands here that it's it's pretty reasonable to suspect that people other than these people in this particular Reddit chat forum were speculating. There's some data going back to December. There's a time lag on you know, when regulators release this data, but there's data suggesting that some large banks were taking some pretty significant positions in this stock as well as early as December. So it's not just going to be, the whole story will not just be whatever these Reddit kids were doing. Right. Um, but you know, as, as to whether that, you know, that activity was nefarious in some way that was you know, underhanded and malign, uh, you know, I, we, we will just find out. But ultimately, I think you do have to ask yourself a question. For, you know, there's a public policy interest here. Yes. Of why, why is all of this speculation happening? This, this is not particularly useful economic activity. And if you're worried about, you know, if, if you're, there were quite a few you know, CNBC commentators, they're like saying, look, this is market manipulation. This is bad. The Redditor shouldn't do this. And if that's, if you're really worried about that, I mean, I think you have to ask yourself why we allow so much speculation in stocks to begin with. Interesting points. And Zach, I'm afraid out of time. I'm grateful for yours and it's good to talk to you. Let's make it a point to have a longer conversation in the weeks ahead, because as you're, as you pointed out, this is just, this is just the beginning. It's almost an entertaining beginning and it certainly captured the attention of an enormous amount of the world's population. But as you also point out, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of detail here and a lot of unpacking to go on. So as that gets done and more facts become available, we should talk again. You game? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. There's Zach Carter, senior reporter with the Huffington Post, uh, joining us from New York City this morning. 
quoting now from the City of Vancouver website where you can go and participate in the citywide residential parking survey. Quote, in November 2020, Vancouver City Council directed staff to explore a citywide residential parking program with a carbon surcharge as part of the Climate Emergency Action Plan. And it goes on to say the program would help us reduce pollution while addressing current and future parking issues in a growing, changing city. One of the city councillors who voted against this at a session in November is Melissa DiGenova. And she joins us this morning to talk more about the survey and the notion of parking permits for all Vancouverites. Councillor DiGenova, Melissa, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us today. Uh, you and a couple of your other NPA city councillors voted against this a couple of months ago. Tell us why, please. Well, I I feel that right now during the pandemic, when people are struggling financially, um, even comprehending how they would go and fill out a form on, on a survey or learn more about this issue, that's something that, that I was concerned about. And... I'm glad I went with my gut when I voted on that in November Mm -hmm. because I recently have heard from people as this is rolled out um, for consultation this week that they weren't understanding how that had happened. So when people reached out to city council on this, um, I've I've had many conversations, but we've received, you know, hundreds of emails, um, not only on issues like this, but on everything. Uh, It was, it was really about the fact that they didn't understand. They didn't know when we voted on this. Mm-hmm. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic. Again, people are struggling financially. And I think we just ha- also have to consider the fact that Vancouver is already one of the least affordable cities in the world. And we rank that way um, as we have continually over the past few years. Um, I I'm really concerned about what this is going to mean for people who can't even opt in. Well, let's, this is really an exclusive program. It creates a gate around our city, a gate of affordability, and there's a lot of people who won't be able to park on a street because they're not a resident. I'm also concerned about what this will do for renters in basement suites that are illegal that won't be able to get one of these permits. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that, the notion that you proposed uh, that a lot of people, and whether it's on this particular issue from City Hall or other policy directives, Melissa, just flat out don't understand what the heck they're trying to pull off. So let's back it up to square one at that meeting in November. You and Lisa Dominato and Colleen Hardwick opposed this after hearing what the plan was. So let's talk about the plan. Let's try and help some more people understand what they want to do of course so let's uh what so the, the plan the plan is to go out for consultation and consider the idea of citywide residential parking permits right um and we see them in some neighborhoods in vancouver and i support them they work in some places like the west end and in areas of east vancouver like near the peony Mm-hmm. But we already have a system at City Hall where residents can come. And if we have overwhelming support from a particular block, like two-thirds of the block has come to us and petitioned with signatures, you can pave your lane behind your home. 
you can also ask for, uh, you know, signs to be put up on your street. You would have to go and get a parking permit, and you would only be able to park on certain hundred blocks. My concern is for, you know, for example, for daycare or for child care workers that perhaps are working off hours uh, in someone's home that works shifts. Uh, my concern is for tradespeople who won't be able to park on those blocks as well, uh, for home care workers, for persons with disabilities and seniors. And on top of that, to, you know, during a pandemic when, you know, people have been financially devastated, mm-hmm. many, many people that we hear from, you know, uh, and they're just trying to, to make things work, to pay their mortgage or pay their rent, that they would now have to, to um, either learn how to participate in this or they don't, and this goes through. You know, this came from in the Climate Emergency Action Plan, yeah. and there were a number of recommendations that I voted against. And it's not that I don't support climate action. I've supported it many times with my vote. But I was very clear when we voted on the original climate action motion that I would be balancing this with affordability. And that was prior to a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I think this is just about the worst time that this could happen for people. And I just don't think that it's fair. You know, it, what I'm hearing from the public is that they're they're seeing it as cash grab. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds that way to a lot of people, Melissa. Uh, we're speaking with Vancouver City Councilor Melissa DeGenova this morning about this notion of uh, a citywide parking permits. Uh, in addition to uh, those individuals and groups that you've identified as being uh, perhaps uh, shuffled uh, or lost in the shuffle or falling between the cracks, uh, renters in basement apartments, for example, uh, if, if they're not legal, then where are they going to park their car, uh, given that they're not supposed to be there in the first place? that sort of thing. Is this project, Melissa, at a point, because we're talking now about this survey, and I'm quoting lines from the survey that's up on the city website, could this still be defeated by citizen action, as in large numbers or a huge percentage of people going to the survey going, no, this is wrong. This is not only bad timing in a cash grab, it's just plain wrong. Could it still be defeated? Well, this is my concern. Sterling, when I look at the survey, I also have to look at the way the survey is being done. And we used to have a a way of engagement, and it was called a citizen citizen satisfaction survey that we did for all of our budgets over years and years and years. Uh, Last year, that was stopped. And instead, there's now this Shape Your City survey, Mm -hmm. which is the one you're talking about. Right. And you don't need to live in Vancouver to participate in that. Before, you needed to live in Vancouver, and um, it wasn't just for uh, it wasn't just for homeowners. Renters could also participate in that. But now, all you need is a Vancouver postal code. Right. So, I suppose if there's large numbers for it or large numbers against it, even if they don't live in the city of Vancouver. Um, I'm just a bit concerned that we're not really going to be hearing only from, you know, I think it's important that we do hear from those people as well. But what? at the same time, I, I, you know, I have to stress that this, this approach can't What, we're losing you there, climate. Melissa. Okay, there you oh, are. Oh, sorry. Do you have me here? Yeah, I got you now. Um, in the same action plan that came forward, I mean, 
there also was proposed for Vancouver to send our staff out to look at tolling a a gate of area in the city, not just the downtown core, but for instance, people traveling into the city of Vancouver who maybe needed to to get uh, treatment at the BC Cancer Agency, Vancouver General Hospital, St. Paul's Hospital. I mean, I have to say, I was a bit concerned about that, and I'm not sure that we Vancouver should be going at it alone. That's for tolls, but that's also for residential parking. There's a lot of people that can't afford to live in Vancouver. Yeah. They come to visit. Hopefully after the pandemic, we'll see that continue. But even just for basic trade service, you know, for people, um, for, for a plumber or to have someone come that's, that's per, perhaps is, you know, uh, working hours of child care or home care service. You know, are we going to see those people choose not to serve Vancouver anymore because they're not able to access certain neighborhoods without a vehicle? Yeah. I'm just a bit concerned about that. I mean, I'm concerned about the way that the, the engagement, uh, you know, may be done only because I'm not sure that that's the number one priority right now for a lot of our residents in the city of Vancouver. Very interesting stuff. And I'm going to direct our residents to our our listeners, rather, this morning, Councillor, to the survey and which uh, they can at least have an opportunity to see what's what's being discussed and uh, have some input should they choose to do it. It's talkvancouver.questionpro.ca or just Google the residential parking survey at the city of Vancouver. and It'll pop up for you in a a split second. Councillor DiGenova, thanks for this this morning, Melissa. Good to talk to you. And clearly, we'll have this conversation again long before any decisions are taken. Thanks. Thanks, Sterling. There's Melissa DeGenova. And yes, uh, City of Vancouver uh, is the place to go. Uh, their website has the parking survey. Cash grab, yes. Uh, timely, perhaps not. You have a chance to pop off. This is going to be a fun piece. Nancy Moore is a legend in the brewing industry. She became the first female head brewmaster in North America at the Olin Brewery in New Brunswick back in the mid-80s. And after working for Labatt for more than 27 years, she worked for several breweries in Europe and in the UK. After returning home to Canada, she helped set up the curriculum at Kwantlen Polytechnic University's Brewing and Brewing Operations Program, where she currently teaches part-time. In 2019, Nancy was presented with the Legend Award at the BC Beer Awards, and now she has an award named after her to help female or underrepresented students in the brewing program at KPU. It's a real pleasure to welcome Nancy Moore to the program this morning, along with Emily Como, the first recipient of the Nancy Moore Award. So, ladies, Nancy, good morning to you. Good morning. And, uh, Emily, good morning to you, too. Good morning. Well, congratulations to you, Emily, on being the very first person to win the Nancy Moore Award. That's quite an introduction, Nancy Moore. How does it feel to have an award named after you? Well, it's a huge honor. It's um, it's it's a little it's a little overwhelming at times. It's like it's, I've just done my job, mm-hmm. but um, the fact that people are are recognizing it is. Um, well, it's delightful, and it is, and it is, a, and it is a huge honor. Well, it's it's also presented by the BC Hospitality Foundation, Nancy, and the BC Craft Brewers Guild. Tell us a little bit about those organizations, because this this award is is uh, is unique. It is it is unique, and they're both organizations that work 
hard to support um, the people in the hospitality industry that we belong in. And certainly the BC, um, the Hospitality Foundation does, gives other scholarships. It supports um, employees, uh, past employees in the uh, hospitality uh, business that, uh, that perhaps when they need it, that there's someone there to help help them. And the Guild uh, is the organizing or uh, the central body for most craft brewers in uh, British Columbia. So they help with education and lobbying and uh, making the world a, a better place for craft breweries. Interesting. Emily, I'm going to do you a favor here and ask you a question that I'm going to get you to give you a few seconds to respond to because I'm going to ask Nancy the same question first. Nancy, yeah. what drew you to the brewing industry in the first place? Oh, I, I, keep me away from your children that are deciding what to do uh, when they're young, because quite literally, when I was uh, finishing up, I did a degree in chemistry at the University of Alberta. And when I was finishing my term and Labatt was advertising this job, I looked at it and thought, that sounds like fun. And it has continued to be fun. And it's and that was the bottom line. It's just well, this looks not, not only a challenge, but this could be a lot of fun. Exactly. I'm, I didn't, I'm not sure. Well, I can guarantee you I did not realize the challenges it was going to be. Interesting. Okay, Emily, it's your turn. Uh, what's, what has been, you're a student in, I believe, second year in the brewing program at KPU. What brought you to this particular uh, training program? Well, I was already a student at KPU, um, and I was looking for a different alternative, and I knew that the brewing industry was super collaborative, uh, super creative, and there was a lot of science and um, a lot of hard work attached to it. And it sounds so like so much fun, and I had to apply. And how's it going for you? It's amazing. Um, the students are amazing. The instructors are so attentive, so caring. It's just it's a phenomenal program. Nancy, uh, you have uh, been in the business now for quite some time. You were the, one of the first head brewmasters, female head brewmasters on this continent back in the mid 80s. So you've been breaking through the glass ceiling for decades. Uh, and uh, is there more of that in I'm thinking the brewing industry? Hospitality always has had a, lo- a large number of, of uh, female participants and managers and executives, but not so much the brewing industry. Is that changing? Slowly. Um, slower than I thought it would have um, when I started. Uh, we know that uh, the numbers, I'm going to quote you for the, for the U.S., but Canada really is not, not uh, much different. Sure. And that is when you look at um, the serving staff, as you talked about, that's the area that 54% uh, of servers in the U.S. are female. But when you go up to the brewmaster level, there's only 10%. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it's a big, uh, it's still a big difference. Emily, is to become a brewmaster the end game as far as you're taking this course is, is about? I actually originally applied going, you know what, it would be fun to do a, uh, be a brewmaster. The more I'm in the indus- uh, or in the program and looking into the industry, um, management would definitely be an option that I would look into. Um, but right now it's 
so open and I want to try a little bit of everything. Well, it's kind of exciting, too. I mean, my gosh, Emily, your timing is impeccable because British Columbia's craft brewing industry over the past, what, Nancy, maybe 10 years has just gone completely bonkers. Absolutely. You can see at about 2013 when the uh, uh, there were some uh, legislative changes made and back to 2006 when the feds changed the excise. And you can see the spike in, in breweries. And Emily, so that's that's got to be a real encouraging thing for you. Just even probably since you've become old enough to drink legally, you've watched even more breweries come on stream. That's crazy. It's really exciting. And seeing how far it's not just in Vancouver, it's coming out into the Fraser Valley and seeing more representation out in the Fraser Valley is super exciting. Are, are you a local person, Emily? Have you come down to a Metro Vancouver from outside the area? Or are you or are you a, a Metro Vancouver person? I grew up in the Fraser Valley. Oh, okay. So you, you know the area, and it, it's not an, an inconvenience. Nancy, uh, this Nancy Moore uh, Award is, in fact, a scholarship uh, of some description. Is the idea to, in, in subsequent years, to assist students for, from wherever they happen to come from in the province? Absolutely. Um, so it, we don't care where a student is from, as long as they're registered in uh, in our program, right. then the scholarship is there to uh, support them. Emily, have you been able to go to school through all of this? I mean, brewing and learning all about brewing operations would strike me as being a pretty hands-on kind of thing. How is your training and how's your course been going this year? You've been doing it virtually or have you been able to go in? The first semester between September and December was done all online. Um, And then um, this semester, uh, we've been lucky enough to do um, our labs, all the hands-on training, um, socially distanced in the the lab. Of course. Yeah. So um, we've been been lucky uh, to be able to do everything safely this semester. Um, so far, knock on wood, everything's going really, really well. And will you be able to do a practicum uh, going into some uh, into a brewery and uh, spending an internship as part of your program? And do you anticipate that happening successfully this year? Um, I've actually been working at a brewery in Coquitlam, uh, Mariner Brewing. I've been working for them since last summer. Okay. So, so yeah, that, that's ongoing then. Yeah, we've been... Um, it's amazing how eager other breweries are looking at KPU students and looking to hire them um, even before they finish their program. Interesting. And I'll leave that there and give the final word to Nancy, who sees a tremendous future for people like Emily and her peers in the brewing program. And again, speaking to those uh, people, young people looking for career opportunities, tell us about the brewing business. Well, the brewing business is, is as, as you pointed out, is growing. And I think the most important thing is that people understand that having um, having employees that know what they're doing, that understand the science and the principles behind it are a huge advantage. So our students are virtually if you want to work, you can have a you can have a job even before you are, you've graduated. Fantastic. So, yeah, we're, um, we're pleased. Emily Como, congratulations on being the first recipient of the Nancy Moore Award. Nancy Moore, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Congratulations on being Nancy Moore. We'll talk again. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Emily, have a great day, too. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.